Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. After focusing on a single topic last week, we've got a lot of territory to cover for this week's episode of the Osterholm Update. But before we get started, Mike, uh, who are you dedicating this week's episode to? Well, first of all, thanks, Chris. It's uh, good to be with you again. Uh, You know, with all the uh, reader and listener email that we've gotten over the course of the past week, it's clear to me that we've been able to establish a, you might say, a a podcast family here that... uh, uh, I think is a very special uh, situation. I, I first of all have to thank everyone for taking the time to read the transcript or listen to the podcast. Uh, I know you all have lots to do and you have lots of different sources of information you can use to get what you're looking for with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. So being here with us each week is a uh, is a very special gift. I appreciate that. And so I've decided this week I'm going to dedicate it to all of you. This is dedicated to uh, all the listeners. And someday I'm sure we'll get a song out of that, dedicated to all the listeners somehow. You know, mamas and papas could try to do uh, dedicated to the one you love. We'll do it to dedicated to all the listeners. So uh, thank you for being here with us this week. Mike, the last week and a half has seen an outbreak of protests in the U.S. against racial injustice and police brutality in the wake of the killing of George Floyd with mass gatherings in several U.S. cities. What could this mean for COVID-19 transmission? The protests have surely added a, um, an additional factor in considering what is happening with COVID-19 in the United States. And it's not clear to us at this point what it means. Um, in the past two weeks, we've had um, a number of individuals uh, in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who have been in close public spaces uh, protesting. And uh, normally we would think that that would be a major risk factor for everyone being together. But the fortunate issue was from a COVID standpoint, they were largely outside. And we know that the virus tends to dissipate into the air. Any air movement uh, will greatly reduce the concentration of the virus around an infected individual or the air that someone standing next to that individual might breathe. And so from that perspective, outdoor air is by far the best place one can be in terms of reducing the risk of transmission. Now, it's not a perfect uh, fix, as we learned in 1918, when uh, a variety of cities against the uh, recommendations of the public health agencies went ahead and actually had war bond parades in support of World War I and fundraising for that war. Uh, Several cities reported marked increases in influenza cases among parade attendees uh, two to five days after the parades. So clearly there was some transmission that still occurred outside uh, even at that time. Now, there are other factors that can play a role here in terms of the protesters uh, and their exposure. Uh, Some of them were exposed to tear gas and to smoke from fires which in turn induced uh, coughing, 
if any of those individuals were infected, uh, they become potentially much more effective at transmitting the virus through the coughing uh, action, which could make them more highly infectious to those around them. Um, in addition, loud voices, singing, shouting, all are aerosolizing related activities that can um, make someone much more capable of transmitting the virus. So we don't know what that means in terms of what the risk is in, in among those protesters. In addition, a, a smaller group uh, were arrested. Uh, they were put into holding vehicles, often small to medium-sized buses, and in some cases for several hours before they were transported to a jail for processing and then put in a jail cell. Um, and each of those event areas would be more attuned with what we'd consider indoor air and the possibility that they actually could have had enhanced transmission. As you know, we surely have seen enhanced transmission in prisons. So the bottom line is we just don't know what that means. Yet at this point, I think the next 10 to 14 days will begin to give us some sense of that if we get people in and get them tested. Now, how does this fit into the bigger picture of what's happening with the pandemic here in the United States? And uh, it is, frankly, uh, uh, quite confusing at the best. Um, we know that we've been reopening the economy, a term for which it means basically, you know, back to normal. Um, we also are very aware that not just within business, but in life in general, we're seeing more and more people who are in, acting as if uh, kind of it's all over with, done. Uh, we've seen many activities where people are not only together again, they're not wearing any kind of facial coverings, uh, just assuming that, uh, you know, the, the pandemic is over with. Um, that surely is a challenge also, and this whole reopening issue has been followed very carefully. Uh, today, we have over 18,000 new cases, 722 deaths. But putting that in perspective, that actually uh, is a drop uh, in what we've seen. If you look at uh, the number of cases uh, and, and the number of deaths, they have been dropping quite precipitously since April. And for the last two weeks, it's been somewhat level, but yet still still dropping. And when you look at actual states and territories, uh, in the case here, 53 states, uh, two, two of them being territories and, and one city, Washington, D.C., a week ago, 17 of these entities had increasing number of cases. Today, that's at 21, up four. Last week, 20 states, territories, or cities were basically flatlined in terms of new cases. This week, it's only eight. And what's happened is uh, what from last week when 16 of these uh, territory, states, cities uh, were decreasing, today that number is 24. So when you look at the total here, uh, it seems almost as if we have two totally different patterns going on. One is an increasing number of locations uh, with cases increasing and uh, additional areas where cases are decreasing. Now, I think we have to be very cautious uh, about these numbers from the standpoint of testing and sampling. Uh, we know that some areas are doing more aggressive testing now than they've ever done. That surely can account for some of the increase in activity that's being seen in the state, not that there's actual more cases, but there's just more cases getting counted. We definitely need to do a better job from a surveillance standpoint uh, in this regard, 
uh, so we have a better handle on what's really happening. So right now, I would say, you know, it's going up and it's going down, and we don't know, particularly when you add in the potential impact of the past uh, two weeks' activities. Now, a third piece to all of this, which is a challenge, is, of course, you've all heard me time and time again asking the question, what will be the scenario that this virus will follow going from the 5% uh, rate of infection in this country that to date that have been infected, I should say, and how is that going to get to the potential 60 or 70%? Um, what is the route that this virus will take? And of course, you know, I've talked about scenarios in the past, uh, several that are what we would call coronavirus-like pa patterns, you know, flat burns, a uh, little kind of uh, foothill uh, hills and valleys uh, type activity, or we could in fact see one like a pandemic uh, influenza model, where in that case, as I've shared with you in the past, if you look at previous influenza pandemics, uh, you often saw a first wave of, of three or even uh, four months activity. Uh, it was more what we call sporadic, not sporadic in terms of cases in each location, but each just a number of locations impacted. Some areas would get hit hard. And then we would see the virus, uh, or whatever other way to describe it, disappear, or at least largely be absent. Uh, we saw that in 1918, even in 2009 with H1N1. If you look at what happened there, you saw the early burst of cases in mid-March into early May, uh, cases leveled off quite substantially. They're still present, but almost in a trough. And then uh, late August, uh, cases came back in a substantial force, uh, peaking out the first week of October, well before vaccine got here to have any meaningful impact. Now, there was nothing done in either 1918 or in uh, 2009 that could be considered major human efforts to reduce the risk. Surely in 1918, there were some cities that did more, but on a whole, this virus really did what it was going to do. And you've heard me say before, you know, in a case like that, you know, we're not driving this tiger, we're riding it. And so we don't know if that's happening. Um, if we keep seeing the number of states dropping in terms of cases at the same time that we're rolling out our society uh, back into some sense of normalcy, that surely means that the virus is doing what it's doing, not because of what we're doing. And so we're going to need to wait and see. One, what role does the protests play in terms of increasing transmission? Two, uh, what might be happening uh, as we get better information on who's getting tested and who's not in terms of getting better numbers? And three, could we in fact be seeing cases drop uh, before a potential uh, a summer trough wave kind of phenomena. And uh, we just don't know the answers to any of those, at least I don't. And uh, I would say this is a stay tuned moment that I wake up every morning and I go think about what's happening today with this virus, uh, trying to understand what it's doing. So let's turn to the global situation. Uh, on Monday, the World Health Organization said that while the situation in Europe is improving, globally it is worsening with a one day high of 136,000 uh, new cases reported. So we've seen how wealthier nations have struggled with COVID-19. How concerned are you about the abilities of countries in Latin America and Africa to respond to a surge in cases? Well, the only way I can describe it is much of the rest of the world is on fire right now. You know, we've gone through our fire uh, in recent months. Uh, we're still very much in it, but, but not to the extent that we were two and a half months ago. 
Um, two things here. One is, is that we're not hearing a lot about this situation because this is low and middle income countries of the world. And that by itself is an important comment because we all are together on this pandemic. Uh, what happens in these countries will have impact in the United States uh, from a standpoint of virus spread in terms of of the issue of just supply chains and manufacturing, but most of all, just global humanity. And um, it is a tragedy to understand that if you look at the countries right now that are suffering so miserably, uh, you're seeing literally a, a major increase, a, a doubling in cases in, in the areas of South America, Latin America, uh, South Africa, and Southern Asia over uh, what it was just literally a few months ago. Um, right now, Brazil has more cases than any other country outside of the United States, is reporting more daily deaths than any other country in the whole world, uh, well over 1,000 new deaths a day. Um, they're the leading uh, case area, but now India also is increasing, where they now their caseload is about the world's fifth largest with over 270,000 cases, and that's rapidly climbing. Um, and in fact, infections in Delhi right now are expected to climb to half a million by the end of July. And city officials have commented there's just not nearly enough hospital capacity to handle such an outbreak. Uh, we're seeing infections rise quickly in South Africa, uh, yet that country is easing its, easing its lockdown because of economic issues. So what will happen there, we don't know. I would consider all of these to still be basically part of a, a first wave as we might see that just got there a little later. But it really is pointing out something that, again, uh, with this pandemic, if you just wait a week or two, some of the conclusions that you had just made may very well go out the window. I can't tell you how many people I had comment to me that there must be something very special that the Indians are doing or that the countries south of the equator were doing because, in fact, uh, there was a relative absence of cases. And, you know, I've learned this lesson almost on a daily basis, just wait a day and see what happens. And sure enough, uh, unfortunately, we're seeing this, this, this terrible increase in cases. I might add that it's somewhat surprising. If you look at the 10 countries right now that account for more than 75% of the cases, it's Brazil, India, Iran, still continue to have a problem, but it's also France. Chile, Pakistan, Bangladesh, South Africa, Sweden, notice Sweden is number nine, and Colombia in that order in terms of the relative number of increasing cases. And uh, uh, I think it's really just pointing out to us that as we look at a global response, uh, it's not enough just to look what's going on in the United States. We have to understand that this, this potential global response is still a very, very critical piece. And specifically, as it relates not, as I said earlier, to humanitarian issues, but from a global economy, from a, a global supply chain issue, um, you know, we're hardly done with this around the world. I find it interesting to see how the United States uh, and the citizens often think that we're over with this. It's done. You know, let's move on uh, when the rest of the world is still on fire. Um, and uh, that that's a, a very unfortunate uh, viewpoint to have that we've kind of forgotten about the rest of the world, but we have. And, uh, you know, I think this is still a harbinger of things to come. I wanted to get right to an email question uh, 
from one of our listeners because it deals with the controversy that has erupted this week and led to a lot of questions. Robert writes, this week, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove of the WHO said during a press conference that it is, quote, very rare, unquote, for asymptomatic individuals to transmit SARS-CoV-2. This sounded contrary to what I've heard in the past. What are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Robert, for your question. We will send you out a book uh, this week. Uh, um, I will inscribe in uh, one of the copies of Deadliest Enemies for you. We appreciate your question. Um, let me, let's just take a step back um, and separate out what was the event of yesterday with uh, Dr. Van Kirchhoff, who uh, in a press conference made a statement uh, referring back to an issue that was actually not even the purpose of the press conference and commented on the fact that um, there are very few studies really looking at uh, the issue of do asymptomatic individuals transmit the virus. And she was referring back to uh, several contact tracing studies that had been conducted where individuals who were asymptomatic did not appear to transmit to very many people themselves. Now, that's different than saying, are there a large proportion of cases who are asymptomatic or mildly ill? Um, I think it was an unfortunate uh, choice of words in the, her answer, something all of us have done many times. If I had a nickel for every time I stuck my foot in my mouth, uh, I could uh, take all of the listeners here on probably a very nice evening dinner trip. Um, and so I, 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 I give her credit today. She came back, tried to clarify the point. Um, but I think what it really is highlighting is that um, we have far too many experts in this business who, because they have a PhD or an MD behind their name, seem to know everything about COVID. And I think we have a lot of questions that we don't understand. Um, I, I'm Every day I learn, I'm learning how much I don't know. And I must tell you, I don't really understand as much as I've studied this, and I've studied it extensively, what is happening uh, in terms of asymptomatic and and uh, the issue of symptomatic transmission. What does asymptomatic mean? We have those individuals who have not had any definite symptoms that they report uh, who are infected and claim that they never have had a symptom. And then we have those who are pre-symptomatic who say, I'm fine today, but I do get sick tomorrow, but I was infectious today. I don't know how to answer that. When we look at the studies of groups that have uh, been tested and found a very large proportion of them infected, but not with symptoms. And then there have been two studies now that have actually done follow-up of these individuals and actually done radiographs, chest x-rays, and found that a large proportion of them will actually have the broken glass kind of radiologic findings indicating that there is, in fact, uh, damage in the lungs that's occurring, and they're claiming they're asymptomatic. Um, I think a paper that uh, will be a very important one was published this past week in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Dan Oren and Eric Topol. Uh, Eric is a dear friend, respected colleague at Scripps. And basically, they highlight 16 different clusters, large cohorts in some cases, uh, of cases that were, or uh, individuals who were tested to be found positive, whether it's in the country of Iceland, uh, a big study in Italy, uh, there have been studies done in the Diamond Princes, the Boston Homeless Shelter, Argentine cruise ship, uh, et cetera. I could go down the list of a number of these different studies where they found up to half of the people or more were positive but totally asymptomatic. 
claiming no symptoms. And so I think that we really need to look at this much more carefully. And my sense is the following, that there are differences that we yet cannot explain where in some instances, we can get a very high percentage of people who are involved with an outbreak who get infected and who develop symptoms. We just saw that in the call center in Seoul, Korea, where a very large proportion of the individuals who are infected, in fact, did get sick. Then we have these observations that uh, Dan and Eric have shared with us, where a very large proportion of people don't get sick. They don't report any symptoms. That by itself is an important distinction. We need to study that. I think there's things to be learned about this virus that we don't understand how it impacts certain people. Is there blood group issues? What is the gender issue? Uh, Things that we just have to be humble enough to say we don't know. The second thing is when you are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, how much do you transmit? And that was the point of where Maria's comments were aimed at yesterday in her contents, the context of contact tracing of saying, you know, go for the people who are clinically ill, they're more likely to transmit. I don't know that's true. Um, I think there are clear examples where we do have asymptomatic people who have transmitted. Um, And so it can't be a blanket statement. But I also don't think that you can say that up to 40% of the people who are infected are infected by asymptomatic people who are transmitting either. So I hope that this whole discussion leads us to additional studies, important studies on uh, understanding asymptomatic status when infected, what it means, why some people don't get uh, sick and others die, uh, and who transmits and who doesn't. It would help all of us. So, So I think we should take this opportunity, rather than being highly critical of someone who made a misstatement relative to, to the moment, um, and, and understand that this is a learning opportunity for all of us. Let's move on. I have other issues with WHO's position, particularly as they look at respiratory protection, but this is not one of them. And uh, I think that uh, I hope it blows over quickly in terms of the debate about what happened. But I also would say that um, we need desperately right now to learn much more about this status of asymptomatic, presymptomatic, who gets sick, who doesn't, and, and what that means. So speaking of respiratory protection, uh, Mike, you covered the issue of masks very thoroughly on the podcast last week. Uh, and since then, there have been some new developments. Uh, the WHO called on nations to encourage the general public to wear masks in places where there is community transmission. Uh, and then uh, also last week, a large review and meta-analysis in The Lancet suggested that the use of masks could result in a reduced risk of infection. What are your thoughts on these developments? Well, first of all, thank you to all of the listeners who uh, sent me uh, responses or feedback on that uh, uh, session. It was a difficult one because I was trying to lay it out as as succinctly and yet as fairly as I possibly could. Um, some of you were still not satisfied. And, uh, and uh, it was interesting because the questions you had were actually many of the same questions I still have. Uh, Let me just be really clear. Uh, I am not for or against masks. I want the data. I want to understand how well they protect or don't protect and allow the public to understand that. Uh, I think that we're not doing anyone any favors, uh, either from a disease prevention standpoint or from an emotional comfort standpoint, by just giving them some 
uh, a recommendation to do this without any context of what it really will mean. And so I still stay in that focus and I will come back to that in a moment because it's not enough. I'm going to talk about it. I better do something about it. And I'm trying. Um, but I think the first of all, let me just point out that we continue to have mass confusion about masks. We mix up mass, much like some people would mix up currency between countries, which I do when I travel all the time. I don't understand. I can't remember which one is which and how much is what's worth. Surgical masks are very different than N95 respirators, and they're both very different from cloth face coverings or masks. And we mix them up in such a way that we will often call surgical masks medical masks, and people think that they mean N95s and surgical masks, and then studies get confused by their findings. And then we will often take surgical masks and cloth face masks and put them into one category. And really, we need to look at all three of them. The best example I can give you is what happened with this Lancet review, which came out you know, saying that there was uh, some evidence of mass having impact, but they were all medical mass. There were only three studies in the entire, all the different ones they looked at that even looked at community individuals. And those were largely medical masks, i.e. surgical masks. There was no cloth mass in there. I stand by the point that I made earlier that the only study uh, that has been done was one uh, done by Raina McIntyre, uh, looking at cloth masks and and uh, surgical masks and healthcare workers, again, not even in the community. And of course, I shared with you what those findings were. So one of the challenges we have is when you hear the word mask, just know that it's become a generic word for a lot of different things that we in public health can't let happen because we need to give you the very best information on what you can do to protect yourself, and it matters what kind of mask you have. Surgical masks and N95 respirators need to be saved for healthcare workers. We now have over 630 healthcare workers who have died in this country as a result of their COVID infection. Many of those were occupationally acquired. Inadequate protection. That is just simply unacceptable. That's unacceptable. So we, if we're going to use masks in the public setting, we have to know we're going to be using cloth face masks. And we can't be using these other masks or else we will, in fact, be taking them away from the people who need them most, which I will tell you right now, right here in Minnesota, we still have a shortage. And, and that's a key issue. So I think, first of all, just using that example of what happened with the a Lancet piece is one where it says, you know, you got to get the right information, and that one really didn't do that. So one of the things I, I just wanted to point out also is how the confusion continues to to go forward. And uh, I won't go into all the articles in the New York Times this week that get into this issue, but there was one uh, published on May 29th that I think is actually quite uh, illustrative, and it was actually done uh, and it's, a, it's a virtually kind of an op-ed piece called Testing is the Key to Beating Coronavirus, Right? Japan Has Other Ideas. And it was an article about all that Japan had done. And this has come up time and time again, how they've done this with their masks. And interestingly enough, of all the interviews they did in this article, not one of them mentioned the role that masks played in what Japan did to respond. And that came up again then in a June 6th article in the New York Times, which was another commentary piece as such. And the title of that one is The Secret to Japan's Virus Success Right in Front of Its Face, implying that the mask 
played a very key role. And in this, I just wanted to point out again that as has happened so many other times, um, there comes back these statements uh, and, and Jeremy Howard, who is behind uh, Mass for All, was quoted in the article saying, Japan, I think a lot of people agree, kind of did everything wrong with poor social distancing, karaoke bars still open, and public transit packed near the zone where the worst outbreaks were happening. Jeremy Howard, a researcher at the University of San Francisco, who has studied the use of masks, said of the country's early response, but the one thing that Japan did right were masks. Well, you know, you can argue that that was the case with all the other things that went on. I would come back to my analogy I used last week about the sign I put on my front lawn saying no elephants allowed. And for three years now, I've not had a single elephant. I thought it was very interesting that in the same article, though, a um, well-known uh, Japanese uh, uh, writer, uh, associate professor at St. Luke's International University in Tokyo, Dr. Uh, Onishi, said, um, many people think that just covering their mouth and nose is enough. He said, if they wear a mask, they think they can go into crowded places, but that is still very dangerous. He, by the way, wrote the book, The Dignity of Masks. And I think this was trying to get at the point I was trying to get at, not to say masks can't make a difference. We need to understand that. But we also have to understand what do we do to reduce the risk? And I'll keep coming back to that over and over again. I just want the data so that we can share that publicly with the group. Now, having said that about the Japanese experience, and again, people coming home about how important it is, it was interesting that uh, the two countries that seem to have done it about as well as anybody, Iceland and New Zealand, and I give them both great credit uh, for the activities New Zealand this week virtually declared themselves virus-free, and it was a remarkable activity. Um, they, and they put out uh, several documents on this, never use masks as a part of their control program and uh, actually have a document laying out the pros and cons of which they list out many cons. But I thought it was interesting. There was an article that appeared this uh, past week uh, in the New Yorker on how Iceland beat the coronavirus. And there is a comment in here that just happens to be passing. Uh, Dr. Moeller is the health uh, director for, for Iceland. And the author of this article says, I asked Moeller about masks. In Massachusetts, an executive order issued by the governor requires masks be worn by anyone entering a store, taking a cab, or using public transit, and violators can be fined up to $300. In Iceland, masks aren't even a part of the public conversation. Moeller said that wearing one might be advisable for a person who is sick and coughing, but that person shouldn't be walking around in pu public anyway. We think they don't add much, and they can give a false sense of security, she said. Also, masks work for some time, then they get wet and they don't work anymore. Again, this is just another statement versus another statement. What it's really pointing out, I think there are many of us out here, not just a few, there are many of us who are just saying, please, let's study these, let's get the information we can, so we can let the public know what it is that they're actually doing or not doing, and not just go on what I would call this mindless uh, recommendation. And I say mindless because if you, you are not willing to listen to the need for data, then I think that's what it is. Now, we at SIDRAP, um, and uh, I'm very proud to announce, or actually uh, have set up a, a very major effort in which we're bringing together more than 20 of the world's leading experts in industrial hygiene, respiratory protection, aerobiology, clinical medicine, uh, respiratory protection in general, 
in a in a effort called infectious dose. How does it inform our decisions about exposure and controls for preventing transmission of SARS-CoV-2? And what we're really attempting to do is identify and review all scientific data that addresses the concept of infectious dose and the role it may play in the respiratory transmission of this virus. Um, it's very important to understand infectious dose is how much virus is in that air, in that, in that setting, how much are you breathing in and over what period of time. If I could tell you going to a grocery store, you were likely not to be at risk if you were experiencing what might be there for 30 minutes. That would be one piece of information that would be helpful. And if I said that a mask could reduce that, a cloth mask by so much, that would be helpful. But if I told you that if you were there for more than an hour, you'd likely be infected given what's there, that too could help you then understand what it is you can do to protect yourself. So uh, I'm very pleased the, the people we've asked to assist us in this effort are literally some of the best people in the world from Europe, uh, from Asia, from the Americas. And uh, we hope to have results of this in the near term. It'll be very objective. We just want to know what it is we can look at about the role of the infectious dose of SARS-CoV and what you can do to protect yourself. So I promise you straight talk. I promise you what we find, we'll let you know. Hopefully we can find enough information that can make a difference so people can make informed choices. That's all we're asking for, informed choices. And I just wanted to uh, let you know that next week I'm actually going to spend some time uh, going over a layperson's understanding of a bit of aerobiology as it relates to uh, the issue of respiratory protection, uh, the concept of droplets, airborne diseases, aerosols. Um, you know, I've had the good fortune to have three graduate classes in this area. Uh, and uh, I've spent a lot of time working with some of the best uh, minds in this issue of, of industrial hygiene, uh, aerobiology as such, aerosol science. And um, I can tell you it's frustrating when I see uh, or hear from so many people who have advanced degrees but have never spent any time understanding this, who just espouse uh, the same kinds of uh, you might say rhetoric almost about this issue. It's a complicated area. I don't pretend to be an expert, so that's why I say I'm a layman. But I've really worked hard. I've spent hundreds of hours just on the SARS-related issues around uh, respiratory transmission, respiratory protection. And uh, so I think it would be helpful uh, if I can share with you what I've learned. I uh, don't want to tell you it's the expert opinion, but next week I will actually spend time trying to uh, give you a sense of of what we know about this issue and what we don't know and how that impacts on what we need to think about for protecting individuals. So you can count on that next week, uh, kind of lecture 101 respiratory protection uh, based on a uh, neophyte's understanding, but a neophyte who's at least uh, had some experience working in this area. You spoke with Helen Branswell of STAT recently about the utility of repeated follow-up testing for people who have had COVID-19 and are recovering. What is the problem with repeat testing? Well, uh, first of all, again, uh, I know I've cited Helen's articles often here, and I want to say that um, I very much appreciate uh, all the SIDRAP articles. I'd like to highlight those, but uh, I might be considered biased. But Helen uh, did a piece this week that um, um, it's not easy to read. Uh, not because it's not brilliant journalism, it is, but just the tug of heart. Um, 
I, uh, I have him in the article. I'm quoted in it a few times, but she's discussing the issue of these continued PCR positive tests that people experience once they've been infected and how they've been interpreted to mean that people are chronically infected, which they're not. Um, but this story starts out, the very premature infant was born via cesarean section and quickly whisked away to the neonatal intensive care unit before his mother could even lay eyes on him. Over the next eight weeks, the only time she saw her baby was when the NICU staff sent photos or when a nurse FaceTimed her while the baby was being bathed. The young mother who gave birth at Montreal's hospital tested positive for COVID-19 when her baby was born. For 55 days afterwards, she repeatedly tested positive for SARS-CoV virus. Because she did, the hospital would not allow her to return after she was discharged, meaning she could not hold or nurse her baby for the first two months of his life. She was clearly an example of where we have seen long-term PCR positivity that has nothing to do with active virus there. We now have quite good data uh, the Korean CDC, which first raised this issue, has finally now validated the fact that almost in all instances within seven to 10 days of your infection onset or your illness onset with infection, um, you no longer have viable virus that can be cultured either from the throat, uh, from other body fluids. Rare cases, it goes beyond that somewhat, but all these PCR positive results are really just viral debris that is being excreted, which may be excreted for days to weeks to even months after the infection. And this is not unique to this virus. And we've interpreted these to mean that they're actually infected individuals. And so we've kept people off of work. We've kept people from having contact with others in schools, et cetera, et cetera, on this erroneous assumption that PCR positivity by itself means you are infected with the virus and capable of shedding it and transmitting it. And so I, I've actually made a recommendation in this uh, article that, uh, first of all, that this should no longer be the standard practice, but that journals should stop publishing these reports where people are purporting that there is, in fact, chronic infection here, or new infections. And because we're doing such a disservice to these patients, imagine any one of us here listening to this who had a new baby that for eight weeks you couldn't even get near because of a bad medical result of a test. That's crazy. And, and uh, we need to move on. We, we, we have enough people already in, in isolation, quarantine, et cetera, but the data clearly supports PCR positivity after seven to 10 days virtually is never a virus positive individual. It's viral debris excretion individual. And that's an important point. So, so I thank you, Helen, for that article. Uh, there's a number of uh, voices in it, including people from the CDC who say this should no longer be accepted. And so I hope that we can start to change that so that people who are uh, experiencing COVID-19 infection aren't also then stigmatized and, and punished for something that is not uh, a part of what's happening. Two studies came out this week that looked at the impact of shutdowns and stay-at-home orders on coronavirus infections. Uh, one finding that the shutdowns prevented 60 million infections in the United States and 285 million in China. The other, uh, which I believe was from Imperial College of London, um, suggesting shutdowns saved more than 3 million lives in Europe. I'm interested in your your thoughts on those studies. 
Well, as all of you know, uh, who have listened to these podcasts in the past, you know, I always have kind of a, a skeptical eye towards models. I, uh, they're all wrong, and just some give us useful information. Um, and, and so I can't say that these numbers are exactly correct, but I think the thrust of these reports are right on the mark. I do believe that they validate that these shutdowns substantially slowed down transmission and that kept some of the locations that were literally on fire from going over what I call the case cliff, where they didn't even have the capacity to provide intensive care medicine because they had completely run out of beds, medications, staff, et cetera. So I think that's actually is very real. Um, the challenge we have today is when we are on fire, it's easier to motivate the world to deal with that. It's easier to any of us, you know, if we see people around us uh, infected, dying, et cetera. Our challenge is, is that when we started out with this whole approach of basically shutting down, it was to stop this from its initial first wave. Now we're living with it. I just got done giving you the data for the United States and all the states seeing increases, decreases, but cases are still here. And the challenge is, how do we now live with it? Something I've been trying to say for a long time that I've not been very good at helping get accomplished. How do we live with it? Despite all the discussions and trying to find ways to deal with this, which, by the way, this will be a topic of one of our upcoming uh, viewpoints is basically how to how to deal with uh, moving on with living with this virus. And so I think the challenge we have is where we're at right now. Uh, you know, Americans, most people in the world, they're done with this virus. They've moved on. And uh, I think we're going to have a hard time capturing their attention in any meaningful way unless there is a big increase in cases in the, in the short term. And that's the last thing any of us want. We don't want that. So we have got to understand that we are not societies that are going to be locked down for 18 months. We're just not and hope that a vaccine will come and save us. How do we thread that rope to the middle of the needle? How do we get that middle stand done where we don't just shut down and lock down uh, and basically not just only doing our economy, but kill our society? How do we keep from having that that tragic and, and overwhelming impact of just unfettered cases moving through the system? And so I think that what we're at right now is a very important moment if in fact case numbers are coming back down uh, for us to take a step back and say, okay, how do we ring and unring the bell of what we're going to do? I mean, I, I actually had a, a uh, senior uh, school official from the United States today contact me and say, you know, um, I understand, you know, we're all going to go back. If in fact we have to, again, close our colleges, we have to move people off campus, when will we know to come back again? Will we? Because we surely haven't seemed to do it very well this time. And I think everybody is struggling right now to find out what are the on and off switches. I keep referring to me, not a light switch on and off, but a rheostat. And then what are we willing to accept? So I think that the quote unquote shutdowns, uh, the national lockdowns, as they've been called by some, uh, the distancing has played an important role. Um, as, as I would leave you with one last thought, I know that for many who have suffered dearly from an economic standpoint, it's, it's tragic. It's hard. I, I have personally in my life understood this uh, in a way that I, I can't even begin to explain. Um, 
But at the same time, we then have to ask ourselves, what are our alternatives? How are we going to deal with this? What are we going to do about it? And I think we're at a point right now where we um, hopefully can get people to come together and say, these are the things we'll accept. These are the things we're not. Remember, Sweden said they had it down. They had an answer. And of course, that didn't work out real well for Sweden. I will promise you that the pandemic is going to change its face in the near term. 80% of the cases in Minnesota right now that have died have all been in long-term care facilities. They've been in prisons. They've been in, in meatpacking plants. And people all look at them and say, well, that's those people. A horrible concept to think of that that way. But I'm telling you, those who are in congregate living areas, those who are in congregate work areas where just one infected person would come in, it was like a match hitting a gas can, boom. That's going to change. More and more people are going to be our neighbors, our friends, our family, our loved ones. And that's going to happen as this virus keeps moving through the population. And those cases in those congregate areas are literally burning themselves out. We're starting to see herd immunity develop in some of these locations just by the sheer number of cases that they've had. When that changes, and I think we start to see our own family members, I predict that we'll be more vulnerable to doing something about this in ways that aren't yes or no. I think about it day in and day out. When I drive along a highway, I'm running late, I, you know, I'm got to get somewhere, and I'm going 62 miles an hour in a 55 zone, it's okay because I'm late. And then I come upon the scene of an accident, and I see him trying to extricate somebody from a car. My heart just thumps. I slow down. I say, this is nuts. Why do I do this? And I stay down at 55 for another day and a half, and I'm back at 62 miles an hour. But then I see those families, those loved ones who have had to experience the loss of their family member or loved one due to a drunk driver. They never, ever forget. They don't ever forget again. And they live their life basically honoring that person to try to avoid others from having to experience what they went through. I think that will happen with this pandemic. I really do. I think as we have more family members, not people who are 78 or 80 or 85 or however, but when we have our 25-year-old and our 35-year-old and our 42-year-old family members who will get seriously ill and die, I think this will change. So my message on this one is, yeah, we've done a lot to, I think, really shave off cases in this particular wave. Um, but I don't see us committed to that in the long term right now. Uh, and uh, I think that will change with time. And, and uh, unfortunately, I'm afraid it's going to take uh, more cases to do that. So, uh, there's another study out today uh, led by researchers from Harvard University that analyzed hospital traffic and search engine data in in Wuhan in the fall of 2019. What did they find in this study and, and what do you make of those findings? Well, I've had a chance to review this paper at some length. Um, one of the authors is a good friend of mine. <laughs> Uh, the title of the uh, paper is Analysis of Hospital Traffic and Search Engine Data in Wuhan, China Indicates Early Disease Activity in the Fall of 2019. And they're making the case that this pandemic may have actually started during the last summer. Um, they use satellite imagery of hospital parking lots to try to understand this in a very limited number of parking lots at, at that, including a primary one as a children's hospital. 
And then also looking at the internet traffic around symptoms of cough and diarrhea, suggesting that cough was more associated with influenza and diarrhea might be a more COVID-19 specific symptom. When I read this paper, I was terribly unconvinced that they had shown me anything at all. Again, it's almost to me like the elephant issue here. Um, I do a lot with diarrheal illness in the summertime is when we see it. Uh, so if people were asking about diarrhea in China, I don't think that that would be something I'd find unusual. Uh, the parking lot data showing there were more vehicles in August at certain hospitals, including the children's hospital, which, by the way, typically uh, you would think of not being uh, associated with COVID-19 since children have made up so few cases. My problem is, and I wanted to cover this specifically with you because these are some friends of mine, but I don't think papers like this should be published. And the reason I say that is unless you have a threshold of information that is proof or relatively strong suggestive evidence that something like this happened, you shouldn't publish it because we are actually continuing to add gasoline to this issue of what happened in China. And I'm not trying to cover up for China. Again, uh, you know, I've already covered my views. I don't think this was an intentional release. I don't think this was an accidental release. I think this pandemic started from an animal to a human strike. But I, all day today, I've gotten all kinds of media coverage. Did the Chinese cover this one up? You know, I'm not an apologist for the Chinese. Um, I'm not. The, we know some of the early day challenges that were had in China in December in particular, even into early January. Um, so the last thing I'd say, but I think to suggest that now that this might have happened way back in August, I think was not a responsible uh, message to put out without more data. If it happened, we want to know it, then we better be able to serve up the information to say it. Otherwise, it's, it really, I think, is not a helpful uh, paper to put out uh, because it does now create a whole nother narrative out there that, see, look, at they knew way back in August. They still didn't tell us. And, you know, as a world, we should be coming together right now as much as we can, not falling farther and farther apart. So, so I don't find any validity in this. If it gets out, and it's all over the media today, uh, the Internet is loaded with this, that, you know, this outbreak started. And I just think, that's unfortunate. So you are a co-author on a paper coming out this week in Science uh, on COVID-19 and the flu. Uh, what can you tell us about that paper? Well, I'm very proud of the fact I co-authored a paper with Dr. Ed Belanja, who is the director for the Center for Clinical Epidemiology and Population Health at the Marshfield Clinic, and uh, a dear colleague and friend of ours who we do a lot of work with. What we've tried to do in this editorial, actually, is just lay out some of the challenges ahead uh, when in the first time, at least in modern history, that we know uh, we've had a COVID uh, pandemic overlaid in what will likely be uh, another seasonal flu year. I say likely because we don't know what the interference between these two viruses. So let me just say that um, uh, I urge you, uh, this will be open to the general public. It, uh, the embargo is until Thursday morning, and we can make sure you get a copy of this. But we try to lay out just how are we going to approach this? What, what does it mean for a vaccine? What does it mean for uh, our public health follow-up uh, and so forth? And, uh, and this is going to be a challenge. Uh, there's no question about that. And how about the next COVID-19 viewpoint from SIDRAP? What issue will you be addressing, Mike? Uh, actually, right now, we're taking on the issue of surveillance. 
it's a very key issue. I referred to it earlier about how well do we know what's really happening in the states? Uh, what are the data sources for that? How reliable are those data? Um, we're also addressing how can we most effectively target uh, our, our COVID disease surveillance using testing and understanding what's going on in our communities. How can we more quickly pick up emerging hotspots? How can we give definition to where most of the infections are at with the idea of then targeting those populations even more uh, in terms of prevention activities? And so uh, I think this is a key one. I'm very pleased, again, we have a number of colleagues on this who I say come from the old days, uh, Dr. Chris Moore, Joel DeBoer, and I, um, working at the Minnesota Department of Health for many, many years, worked with colleagues from the CDC, other state health departments. They were uh, key authors in our recent contact tracing paper. And they're also going to be uh, authors on this paper. And it's great to bring back uh, these colleagues, uh, some of them who are retired, semi-retired. They have a collective experience that is so invaluable. They're, they're really, truly uh, a gifts to have because uh, they've lived through a lot of this. So, so we're excited about that, um, and we look forward to getting that out soon. And then we have a whole series of of uh, viewpoints in the works right now that uh, I think people will find helpful. Well, we've covered a lot of topics today, Mike. But uh, as always, you like to leave our listeners uh, with some 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 thoughts and some wisdom. Uh, what's on your mind this week? Well, you know, I. Uh, thought a lot about what we as a nation have experienced, uh, what we've been through in the last two weeks in our communities, uh, the very, very difficult uh, days ahead in trying to to right wrongs that have been done uh, to society, how to respond to the COVID situation where uh, we don't want people to uh, basically be locked up for the rest of their lives, but we've got to acknowledge that we've got this situation that is right in front of us with this virus, and it's not going to go away just because we want it to go away. And so I think it's at a time when we all need each other more than ever. And uh, one of my very favorite songs that meant a great deal to me uh, growing up that uh, I think that uh, uh, was one that was one of my anthems was by the great American singer-songwriter Bill Withers. Uh, the song was released in April of 1972, Lean on Me. And uh, the first verses go, sometimes in our lives, we all have pain. We all have sorrow. But if we are wise, we know that there's always tomorrow. Lean on me when you're not strong. I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. For it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. And I think we all, in the end, that's true. We all need each other. And so, again, I charge you with uh, going out and committing those great acts of kindness. Uh, our epidemic of kindness is going to grow and take over this pandemic. And just remember, we do need each other. Lean on me, and I will lean on you. And with that, thank you very much for spending the time with me again. Um, I appreciate this. As I said at the beginning, I know you have lots of options for getting information, and uh, it means a great deal that uh, you would spend the time with us here. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Osterholm, and thanks for listening to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you can keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu.